Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, Ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my, it's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others, here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and today is the 16th of June. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, I'm here with my co-host, Patricia Kirkman. PK, how are you tonight? Uh, Drip dry. Just drip dry. (laughs) Great weather here. (laughs) Tell everybody your temperature out there. It's 114. Oh. I it's a little too that. warm. No, My if I'm going to go to I want to have this lush stuff all around me where you get to rub down afterwards and all that good stuff, not oh, just yeah. drip. That's <laughs> not fair. <laughs> now, do you have to take oven mitts with you in your car? No, but I probably should. That's not a bad idea. There's so many yeah. places you go, you can't even open the door to the buildings because they have the metal handles, and they put uh, leather or cloth over them. I've got a metal screen door here to my uh, office area, and uh, I can't open it without something in my hand. You're right. I should keep a mitt on hand. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, well, actually, somebody who lived out there told me they did that all the time, and they, they kept them in their car because they couldn't even touch the steering wheel. It would be so hot. That That is a fact. I had the... Uh, window cover up, but it's still the the wood, wood uh, steering wheel was just like a, a a big deal coming out of the oven. And there yeah. was nothing to Awful. burn. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad you're safe anyways. And now tell us what's happening. Again, uh, there's some real crazy stuff happening, which we're going to talk see. about a little bit. And then we have a great guest tonight. We have Paul Rimish with us, and he is a law enforcement expert, and he has written a new book, and I just can't wait to hear this. I know you're excited about this, too. It's just phenomenal to get police officers to talk about their experiences with the paranormal. Mm -hmm. His new book is called Fingerprints and Phantoms, True Tales of Law Enforcement Encounters with the Paranormal and the Strange. So... We've got him with us. We're going to bring him on in a few minutes. But first, we need to get a lay of the land here with what's happening, with the numbers and astrologically, what's going on? Well, we're still we're dealing with that two months, which deals with relationships. But they have to remember that what goes up must come down. So the good side of the relationship is there, but we also have the negative side, lies, deception. Not We'll say the good, the bad, the ugly ongoing all at the same time and people are very sensitive and some people are very insensitive they like prodding other people because it makes them feel good to see somebody 
seem less not good, but the way it is. And with the retrograde, ay, it's like it's like being Tarzan hanging on the rope, but the monkey cuts it before you get across the river. Uh oh. <laughs> Just a and, and this, way to and this is supposed to be a pretty tough Mercury retrograde, right? Oh, it is a bugger. It is definitely not one of the pretty ones. Oh. So we're stuck with it, the, like I said, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But people, the sensitivity, it, being overly sensitive in a heartbeat can make us very insensitive. Try to remember how you feel and try to pass that on to the other person in the positive side instead of feeling that you've been used, abused, and misused, let's put it that way. It's, it's necessary that we start taking care of helping others Instead of, well, that didn't sound right to me, so I'll get even. And that's what a lot of things are happening right now. Look at the Queen and uh, and Harry. They say one thing, she says another. They're going back and forth with all that. And it's made a mess of relationships. Well, the common people can do the same thing, and they're doing it really well. Yeah, look at that plane where they had to turn it around because two men were fighting over elbow space on their seats. It's crazy. Would have, isn't that pathetic, grown yep. men doing that? But everybody yeah. wants to blame the other person. It wasn't me. What's that, that commercial that they have out right now about who's got the popcorn or whatever the heck it is? It's not me. Everyone wants <laughs> to blame somebody else. I guess it makes them feel better for the moment, and then they have to think about it and feel like a jackass because that's what yeah. they were. Exactly. Not a exactly. gay, but just take a look at I can't wait for next month because it's going to be a great month, and we're only oh, halfway there. First, the retrograde will be over with. It'll be a month about creativity, and I can't wait for that because creatively I want to know what's really going to happen because... What we're seeing right now in the news is not creative. It's very deflating. It's not real. I mean, there's a lot going on, and and people have been – I mean, it's like some of these things that are coming out, we knew about this how long ago. The audits. I mean, we knew that Mm -hmm. this whole election was rigged. No surprise. But now all these other states are jumping on the bandwagon. It's going to be interesting to see – because they've already announced something about 80,000 votes in Maricopa County that uh, should have gone to Trump and didn't when Biden didn't win your state by very much. So it's going to change a lot when all of this comes out. And I know we've talked about this. People are going. Some people will be surprised. Some people are going to say, hey, I told you so. So there's that. There's all of this uproar with Fauci. There is now this... G7 summit, which is <laughs> it's just not a great representation for the United States. I'm putting it diplomatically. But there is just so much going on here. The, the disaster of Harris not going to the border and answering uh, to a Univision reporter with a snippy attitude. Was, and it's like, oh, my goodness me. I've never been to Europe either. I thought, oh, my God, it's like a little kid. It's it's very troubling, but at the same time, as I mentioned to you earlier, this is weird. Um, These federal offices are being shuttered for some reason. The FBI building is closed. It's shuttered. Why? 
there's a whole bunch of them that are closed and no explanation. A lot of flyovers with military planes, capital. A lot of questions is what we have at this time to say, why is this happening? What is coming? And as we know, uh, one of our great guests, William Stickevers, a fabulous astrologer, did say that June was going to come with a big shock. So I think we've well, had some minor rumblings, oh, and, yeah, we'll see what the shock is. What do you think? Good. And watching the people, God love them. They, they don't even run. and They come across the border, and they just sit and wait for the Border Patrol to find them. They, I mean, they, wow. they know nothing's going to happen to them, and it's so pathetic because these people have taken their last few pence, whatever, to get here, and what have they got to look forward to? They're going to be put on a bus dumped somewhere in the country, and God knows what they're going to have to go through to get back on their feet. Yeah, and a lot of people, you see what Texas is doing, they're going to build the rest of the wall themselves, and they're sending people back, they're arresting them, and getting them back to their own country. So there's, you know, they're not going to tolerate these policies that create such a crisis, and it is a humanitarian crisis because these people coming over, as you mentioned, they're in, some of them are in bad shape, they're ill, some of them have COVID, some of them have other things. And well, it's look at not a good situation. And little children taking care of little children and being pushed across the border. Good God. You think that some of them look like they're kindergarten, first, second, third grade type variety. Right. And how in the world take care of each other? They're not fit to take care of themselves. No, oh, it's, very, it's very sad that there's nothing humanitarian about it. Um, this could have been avoided, but uh, other things took place. So we are anxiously awaiting <laughs> this next month that you talk about, and hopefully things will, will change and go in a different direction. I hope so. I know you but do, too. communication, so let's keep our fingers crossed. Yes, exactly. So I also wanted to give everybody a new number to work with. You know, we've been talking about the Grabovoy codes Right. And people have been having great success with them, so here's another one. This is for immediate flow of money. I thought you guys would like that. So here it is. It is 426499. Again, that's 426499, immediate flow of money. Write it down on a piece of paper. Put it in your wallet. Sleep with it under your pillow. Meditate with it. Let's see what can happen. We've been getting great reports. It's a 34-7, which means it's spiritual, three is creative, and four is let's go for it. That's good. It's got everything we need. All right. Well, let's dive into this incredibly interesting subject. So Paul Ramesh graduated from Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, with a bachelor's degree in forensic science and a minor in photography in 1997 and with a master's in criminal justice in 2019. He has worked as a crime scene investigator for Weber Metro CSI for the past 23 years, and he is a three-time recipient of the Weber County Sheriff's Office Medal of Merit. That's amazing. Congratulations, Paul. That's great. So Paul has certifications through 
the International Association for Investigations in Latent Fingerprint Examination and Forensic Photography. And he is currently serving as Utah's representative to the Western Identification Network Latent Fingerprint Committee. Now, Paul has written books before. His first novel is The Lost Stone. It's followed by a sequel, The Lost Mine, in 2015. And, of course, his latest book, which we're going to be talking about tonight, Fingerprints and Phantoms, The True Tales of Law Enforcement Encounters with the Paranormal and the Strange. So, Paul has also published scientific papers in the Journal of Forensic Identification and Ancient American Magazine. He's also an adjunct professor at Weber State University and is active in training of law enforcement officers and crime scene investigators. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so wonderful to be with you guys tonight. I'm excited. Oh, we are too. Thrilled. Yeah, Definitely. thrilled to have you here. What a fascinating topic. What what inspired you to get involved with this topic? Well, I think you could trace my interest in this topic to sitting around a campfire as a small boy. <laughs> I love stories. I love a good campfire story. And I had, when I was young, when I was in the Boy Scouts, I had the best scoutmaster ever. His name was Larry Holloway. And he used to tell the best stories. I mean, I just loved sitting around the campfire hearing these tales. And so I've, I've always loved a good story because of that. And as I got into my career in forensic science and, and um, you know, started to work and do these things, I noticed about it and something that I really loved about the field is that there's a rich storytelling history or tradition in law enforcement. And and the reason that is, is, you know, on TV, uh, law enforcement and forensics, it's, you know, portrayed as very exciting and nonstop action and all these things. Well, you know, that, that happens, but there is actually a lot of downtime and, you know, it's not quite as bad as the military. You know, you hear the military people say it's 99% boredom and 1% terror, Um, You know, we don't quite have the terror that our dear friends in the military have, but um, mostly. But, you know, there is a lot of downtime, whether you're uh, waiting for a call to come in or you're sitting at the courthouse waiting to testify or you're at a crime scene waiting for a search warrant. There's just a lot of sitting around time. And people tell stories. And, you know, the stories range from, um, daring feats of bravery to uh, unsavory stories that we won't tell on the radio and, and other things <laughs> like that. But um, I, because I like good campfire stories, I started to ask people if, you know, during these story sessions, if they had had any weird stuff happen to them or ghostly things or, you know, just anything like that. It was It was around Halloween a few years back and, you know, you get in the, the spirit of the season. Don't you love October? <laughs> it's yeah. the best time of the year. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's my favorite month. But, um, my yeah, birthday month, so that's I, why I like it. <laughs> what's that? I said it gets to be my birthday month. That's why I like oh, it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> For sure. But, but so, yeah, one October I just started to ask stories, and, and I was I, – I wondered how people would react to this because, you know, I – 
as a forensic person, you know, we're kind of caught between two worlds. I mean, I'm a civilian. I'm, I'm not a sworn officer, but we work with the sworn officers really closely. But, you know, and they have kind of one approach. And then, you know, me and my colleagues were a little bit more scientific in our approach and, and, or, you know, not more scientific, but, the, you know, the scientific part of it is what we're after. You know, we're not we're not the ones kicking down the door. We're the ones taking pictures of the door after it gets kicked down. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's pretty cool. So, so you know, we, ha- we have kind of the different approach. So, so I was curious as I started to ask these stories, and I, I quickly found out that most people had at least some thing weird happened to them that they couldn't explain on the job, whether they're forensic people or law enforcement people. And I just started to get all these stories. And I, you know, just kind of mentally took a note of them and was just kind of collecting them for, you know, my own pleasure, you know, as a, as a devotee of the spoken word. But my wife one day was like, you know, you should really write these stories down because they're really good. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And so I was between projects and between things. So I just started to jot some of these stories down and it became kind of a labor of love over the span of a couple of years, just asking people stories. And and that's how this book came about. And uh, I just, it, it really is a labor of love. And there's a, a lot of me in the book too, because the way I structured each chapter is that, you know, there's the spooky or the strange story, but the first part of the story kind of deals with maybe we could call it law enforcement insider information, maybe. Right. That's kind of a good way to put it. You know, what why we do certain things and, you know, maybe some of the chapters even have kind of a stream of consciousness, you know, just some of my thoughts on things. And kind of the best example is uh, many officers – have had weird things happen to them parked in cemeteries in the middle of the night. And so you might ask yourself, a a sane person would say, well, why do officers park in a cemetery in the middle of the night? And so one of the chapters in my book explains why it is that officers do that. And I can discuss that in a second. And then, and then it transitions to some of the actual stories that have happened to people. So all, all the, the, the chapters, all the chapters in the book are kind of organized that way. So it kind of itches uh, two scratches if people love, uh, you know, law enforcement procedure and things like that. That'll interest them, and then it goes into the ghost story. So that's that's how it's organized. Well, we love how you organized it because it, it does make sense to provide both. You also said that in your book that a lot of these people really – welcomed the opportunity to share their stories with you. Yes, and and I I think, you know, two great paranormal researchers and podcasters like yourself, you've probably encountered this, I imagine, multiple times because some people have things happen to them and they're afraid to talk about it because they think people are going to think that they're weird or that they're crazy or something like that. And, you know, they know what's happened to them, but they're just, they're just afraid to share. And so, you know, I, I come along and I start asking people different questions. And, you know, some people, you know, some officers or forensic people kind of clam up, but others, others are like, oh, you know, they can tell he's not going to make fun of me, you know, like he's going he's gonna to listen to me and this is what happened. And, 
they they are relieved and and and, and it's interesting the the I've often had the question brought up to me uh, you know about this book do I think that it'll somehow undermine my credibility as a person of science someone who has to go into court and testify and ha- matters of fact and and testify after being you know, ruled to be an expert witness by the judge and having jurors supposedly believe me, you know, do I think that my interest in this and, and my writings will undermine that credibility? And, you know, it's, it's a legitimate question, but I, I, approach, it, I approach it from this, from this point of view. And when I was a young crime scene investigator, my boss and mentor at the time, his name is Rustine. And he taught at Weber State for years, just a legendary professor up there. And he and I had the pleasure to work with him for a few years. He taught us to think in a certain way. And most people, and this is even the way um, children are taught in schools to think scientifically, and it's called the scientific method, is that most people have a theory first, and then they set about to do some experiments or some research to prove or disprove that theory. And then when they come to a certain point, they're like, okay, we either have enough um, information to say that theory is true or to, you know, disprove it. And, and that's, that's what's really pushed as a, as a way of thinking. But the way Russ taught us to think and the way he approached the crime scene was to not have any theory at all going in. And I think this is very important for law enforcement, investigators, crime scene people to have. Because the trouble with having a theory is that sometimes you become anchored to that theory. And it's actually there's a fallacy, a logical fallacy called the anchoring fallacy, where you are anchored to your original theory. And even if there's facts that start to maybe disprove that theory, you are anchored to that and you're not going to let it go. Now, we know this is dangerous in all manner of uh, pursuits of knowledge, but in law enforcement, it's particularly dangerous because if you are anchored to a theory, most of the time that means you're anchored to a suspect and you think this guy did it. And even if facts start to say, nope, this guy didn't do it, you can become anchored to that. And there's plenty of examples in the literature and the media of people who've been wrongfully convicted. And that's just a a terrible thing. Yeah, and it makes sense what you're saying, that you you put a lot of work into a case, you see it going in one direction, and you want it to resolve in that direction. So it is. I can see where it would be difficult sometimes to abandon all of that work and try to look at it with a different perspective. Right, and, and, that's, and that's, that's why Russ taught us to, when you go into a crime scene, you don't have a theory. Like, you, you do not latch on to any person or thing or whatever that you think happened. You begin to gather evidence. You begin to look and turn over this rock, metaphorically, turn over that rock, and as you gain information by looking and examining, eventually you will come to a conclusion as you go from the bottom up. And you shouldn't be anchored to a theory that way. 
you shouldn't have tunnel vision, and that's what he always he would always tell us. Don't get tunnel vision, guys. Don't get tunnel vision. And that's the way I was taught to approach things. And so, you know, coming back around to the topic of the paranormal or or ghosts or you know how how whatever we want to call it, there are people that have experienced things that they you can't readily explain. And not only that, that they defy explanation. In a lot of times, in uh, hauntings or paranormal things that are involved to crimes, sometimes these people have knowledge that they shouldn't have because of their experience. And so, you know, if you look at those, if you if you if you have the initial opinion that well, there's no such thing as life after death, or there's no no such thing as the paranormal you're going to explain away all these different things that people experience and you're going to find a way to explain it. But if you have that bottom up approach, the way I was taught to think, you're going to listen and hear the people's stories and, and consider the facts. And then some, some things you can exclude is, is, you know, there's a reasonable explanation for it, but other stuff I can't. And, And so, you know, kind of a long story to, for a sh- short question, but, you know, do, am I undermined my, my credibility as a scientist? I don't think so because I'm approaching it the way I approach everything else from that bottom-up approach. And, you know, there's some stories that, like I said, that people have information about a crime that they shouldn't or they have the name of a person that they shouldn't or, or whatever it is. How can I tell them that they didn't experience that? when they have exactly. good information. So I don't know. I'm, I'm sure some people would nevertheless say, oh, you shouldn't be dabbling in this, but I don't know. I, I don't see how I can ignore or discount some of these very credible accounts. Exactly. And, and again, you have our greatest respect because you do work in a field that requires evidence, actual physical evidence. We also had a guest on the show, PK and I, uh, last year, I believe, and he was a medical doctor. And he did something similar to what you did. He started talking to other doctors about their experiences with the paranormal. And interestingly enough, Paul, he found the same thing you did, that these doctors also were finally feeling relieved that they could talk to somebody about what they encountered in the operating room or while examining a patient or whatever, things that they had no explanation for. So it, it appears that you and this doctor are on the leading edge here, allowing people a chance to express and to, to talk about these amazing encounters to a sympathetic person. And it's important because as we evolve, we seem to be making a little more room for the paranormal in our everyday lives overall. I mean, look at the high percentage of people that now say UFOs are real. It's over 60% now, and that was some mainstream media poll. So there's there's just a lot more room than there ever used to be for these kinds of conversations. So good for you for doing this. Well, thank you. And and there's there's plenty of other people out there, you know, doing that too. I don't, I can't take any <laughs> credit onto myself, but I. You should. It, <laughs> After well, all, you've got I, I mean, people's attention, and that, those are the things that are so important, right? Yeah, and it is, and sometimes it just does 
take a little bit to get the ball rolling. And, and it, it, it never fails. When, when I'm on a podcast or a radio or something, I, I encourage people out there listening to contact my Facebook page. So the, the Fingerprints and Phantoms, search that in Facebook, and I have my Facebook page for the book. I encourage people out there to, you know, if they have any interesting stories, you know, and they're, they work in law enforcement or, or whatever, to, to drop me a line, and it never fails. People, people shoot me messages all the time, and so many people have these experiences. And like I said, how, how can I discount it? I, I, just, I just can't, and it's not the way I was, was taught to think gives people the opportunity to share what they've been feeling and have feared that other people would think less of them. You've opened a door for people to really bring these out with how you've handled it. I think it's great. I appreciate it. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. And I, you know, I, and once again, I, you know, when I hear a great story, I'm tickled pink, you know, I'm just, I love to to collect those stories, but, but let let me give you an example from, from the book about an instance where because of something paranormal that happened, people had information about a crime that they shouldn't. And this, this case is interesting on a lot of facets. I, um, I kind of didn't even think about one of the weird things that happened on that case until just recently when something strange happened to my coworker. But it was a, it was a murder that had happened years ago. I was just a rookie basically when this happened, but it was a a man and a woman, uh, just a young couple, beautiful young couple. And they had not been married for very long, but they were getting a divorce. And it seemed like it was going along amicably enough. You know, they, were dividing up their property and things seemed to be okay. But then just one night the husband got drunk and snapped and, and murdered his wife. And it was quite a brutal killing. And when, when we got to the crime scene, you could feel her there. You could feel the presence of that murder victim when you walked into the apartment and oh it's nothing, nothing I can explain. Um, you just had to be there, uh, but it was like, you know, you had your th- three crime scene people in there and you just felt there was another person. I mean, it got, it was so noticeable that we started to greet her as we would enter the room the next day, like, Hey, we'd say her name, we're here. And, and it was just, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but the first day when we were there, uh, there was a CD in the CD player, and it was playing a certain song over and over and over and over again. And, you know, I didn't think too much of it at the time because, you know, those, those CD players you could put on repeat and it would play that song over and over again. So we didn't think too much of it, but the song was interesting. It was a Sarah McLaughlin song called Sweet Surrender. And I don't know if you're familiar with that work, but it's a very sad and depressing song. And it's at one point, the lyrics say the life I've left behind me is a cold room and sweet surrender. And just, it, it, it's very depressing. And what's interesting is today when I got in my car to drive home from work to do this podcast, guess what song was on the radio? Oh, <laughs> oh my <no>. goodness. <laughs> so, 
So there's some <laughs> synchronicity for you right there. But but anyway, so the the song the song just was playing over and over again, and the lyrics were such that eventually one of the members of our team was like, can we turn that music off? Because usually when we go into a crime scene, you kind of want to leave it as is as much as possible. Like if the TV's on, you leave it on. And if the lights are off, you leave them off. It just, and, and you don't, you don't necessarily have to do that always, but you're just in the mindset of, you know, in those initial documentation stages when you're doing photos and video and different things, you just want to leave it, as in situ as possible and so we, yeah we just left it alone so we turned the music off and and we we worked there for probably every day for two weeks it was quite an involved scene and and you know in the scene it looks to us like the young lady had been chased down this hall and she was trying to get into the bathroom door so she could maybe barricade herself in the bathroom but unfortunately the door opened outwards so she was pinned against the door and that's where she was killed and so anyway we worked the case two weeks every day feel her there but then you know gets to the end of the investigation and we wrap up operations and move on to the next next horrible thing that we have to deal with and you know it it, uh, went to trial and the trial was over, and then, you know, you move on. You don't really think about it. Um, but May I ask you a question uh, about this? Please. What was her first name? Ooh, I don't – I'll tell you off air. I don't – I've never wanted to make my stuff true crime. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I've, I've oh, often okay. wanted to – Oh, that's okay. I'm only asking because I'm hearing somebody talking. And I just wanted to know if it was her. But here's the feeling that I get from her. She said this happened so fast. I mean, so fast. She couldn't even think fast enough to know what to do when apparently he snapped the way he did. So that's the message I'm getting from who I I believe may be the victim. Yeah, I'm interested to hear the name. But, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to not use the names of the victims and a lot of details about their case in my book because out of respect for them, I don't know. I don't. Well, sure. Yeah, I understand that. But I just, I like, the only reason I ask is because I wanted to make sure I know who I'm talking to. But that's what I, the message I got from her. So um, that's what she just told me is that it happened so fast. Yeah. So this is not something that's built up um, and she was thinking I'm going to get, killed by this guy it it was something that just happened in a in an absolute flash is what she said well shoot me a message on my facebook you guys sent me a message before i'm really curious <laughs> yeah and yeah i, I will but that's you know it's funny because i think there's a reason why you heard that song on before you came to the podcast that's not a coincidence yeah. i'm sure and no. <laughs> and so she she has a little more to say and and again it's when you're dealing with the spirit world and people have crossed over sometimes it's hard to know who's who out there so <laughs> but anyways um she looks to be a lovely lady i mean a really lovely lady she was beautiful beautiful yeah that's what but... she looked she appears that way to me well and so let me finish the story so it'll be interesting Go to ahead. hear your 
your concept or your take on that because here's where some of this information comes in. So, you know, the case was in the media, but, you know, the, the media, we don't release details, you know, nuts and bolts of the crime. You know, they know that a person was murdered and, and different things, but, you know, there weren't a lot of details. Well, a couple years later, like two or three years later, the apartment's cleaned up, re-rented out, you know, everything's going on. And an officer who actually was one of the first responders, he gets a call to go back to that apartment, to the very same apartment where she was murdered. And, you know, he feels a little weird going back there because it had been obviously traumatic. He was the officer who discovered her. And, but it was, it was a minor call that they were dealing with, a, a juvenile disturbance or something, noise complaint, I can't remember exactly, but it was not, you know, not a serious crime. He just had to take a routine report from a man and a woman who were living there. And after they finished their business, he was getting ready to leave, and the, the woman who called him there said, oh, officer, um, perhaps you can answer a question for me. Was someone murdered in these apartments? Mm. And he's like, oh, he said he felt the you know hair stand back, you know, on the back of his neck stand up, and he's like, yes, ma'am. And she's like, well, which unit? And Mike, the officer, said, well, are you sure you want to know? She goes, yeah. And he goes, well, this one. And the husband, the whole time, had just been sitting on the couch watching TV. He hadn't been really involved in the conversation. He suddenly pipes up and goes, well, that explains a few things. <laughs> and so Mike, at that point, feels kind of the blood drain from his face. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And, he, and the people said, oh, it's, it's nothing. Just every now and again, the bathroom light will turn on and the door will open by itself. And at that point, Mike really feels the blood drain from his head because he knows they are describing a crucial part, a crucial piece of the crime scene, that that bathroom door, that she was right up against it when he found her there. It was, you know, we figured she was trying to get in there. And so they had this very specific information that was never out in the media. People didn't know this, but their the strange experience that happened to those people described very specific things. And so, you know, like I said, when I hear this story, okay, you know, they're older apartments. Maybe it's a wiring problem. Maybe it's a, a draft that pops that door open. But it's it's so specific that, I don't know, I, well, I, can't, I can't just discount it. Well, and, yeah, exactly. Now, what happened? How did the case resolve? So were charges filed against the husband? Oh, yes. Yeah, he... Uh, he was charged and he pled guilty and now he's in prison. So, yeah, there wasn't a trial or anything. No. Very interesting. Well, I definitely will shoot you an, a message on Facebook about the rest of the message that I got and you can see if it matches up. But yeah, for she sure. definitely had something yeah, she wanted to say about this. So. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, I, and I apologize. I just I've never wanted to make it a, a true crime book. I really, I really have respect for these poor victims of crimes. And yeah, I don't know. I didn't want to release. I want enough details in the book for the stories to make sense. But it's 
I don't want to glorify their crimes. It's not true crime. It's not a yeah, true crime and book. it's just it's interesting because again, uh, there are messages that come through from the other side. A lot of times, when you encounter things like this, it's a message. So communication is taking place and it's interesting the characters to get involved with it like the next people that move into the apartment and they didn't sound yeah. very bothered by it i mean the way nope. the husband talked about it was kind of matter of fact so they didn't feel threatened in any way yeah, or weren't. afraid it was just weird stuff going on so that's interesting yeah and then uh, another story that's that's in the book that goes on to that concept of how how could this person know otherwise was a story that happened in the emergency room. And it's interesting that um, earlier you guys mentioned the doctor that you'd had on as a guest who, you know, was collecting these stories as well. But we had, uh, we had a guy come into the emergency room and it was in the winter. Uh, Utah winters can get pretty cold. They're not as cold as new England winters. But, you know, it's it's cold enough that, unfortunately, a few times a winter we have people, and usually people experiencing homelessness, um, freeze to death because of lack of shelter and stuff like that. And it's, you know, a few times, few times a year it happens, unfortunately. And so the, this guy was brought in to the ER, and he didn't have any identification on him. He was a John Doe, and... Uh, they worked him for a while. They tried to save him. They tried to warm him. They tried to resuscitate him. Heroic effort by our medical people, but about after an hour of working him, he was not getting any vital signs, and so they uh, called it. And, you know, when something like that's going on, all the doctors and nurses are really busy and running around, and the other patients get, you know, triaged a little bit. If they don't need immediate care, you know, they're put on the back burner a little bit. And so, um, in the room right next to where this life and death drama was was taking place, there was a, a older woman and her adult daughter. And the older woman was having some breathing problems, and the daughter was there supporting her. So after everything kind of calmed down with the, with the person who had frozen to death, the, a nurse comes in, and the daughter seemed really agitated and and the nurse is thinking, oh, they're mad because we weren't in here helping them and all this stuff. But the daughter was like, hey, I, I know this is going to sound really weird, but um, the the guy in the next room was over in our room. And mm. the nurse is like, well, ma'am, I'm sorry to tell you that, that he's dead. That's impossible. And she's like, I, well, I, I know, I know. She's like, this has never happened to me this bad, I, but he was in here. And so, you know, by that statement, it seems like she was an intuitive and, you know, had contact with the other side. The veil was thin for her sometimes. Um, but she had had, it turned out, this very intense experience where the guy from the other room had left his body, and she couldn't see him, but she could feel him. She could feel his hands on her shoulders. He could feel his presence really really close and he was talking to her and he was frantic he was telling her that he did not want to die and he knew that it was going to be a disappointment to his family and he had disappointed his family his whole life and he really didn't want to die and he didn't want to go to the other side and he was just 
frantic in this this communication that he didn't want to die. And at some point while he was communicating with this lady, he told her that his name was Thomas. And so she's telling all this to the nurse and the nurse is a little skeptical and, but she listens to the lady and, you know, she can tell that something's happened to her because she's a little bit upset, but you know, she, she listens to her and, thanks her and then she goes back into the room where the man had died and as I told you he did not have any identification on him and they had no idea who he was but he did have a backpack with him and so the nurse started to kind of rummage through the backpack and there wasn't really much in there but in the bottom of the backpack there was a receipt and when she pulled the receipt out the uh, they had written on the receipt, you know, the store had written his name, probably to call him when his order was done. And the name that was written on the receipt was Thomas. Ah, wonderful. And so that made the nurse a believer. It was really funny. Like, she was a person who really wanted to tell somebody the story. She had written it all down. She had even put parts of it in her medical notes because of the name aspect and everything. And so, you know, we, we find ourselves up at the emergency room a lot to go up and take pictures of victims and collect evidence and stuff. So we get to know the nurses pretty well. And a lot of cops end up dating nurses and things like that. Um, but, you know, I had a few friend nurses up there and I, you know, started to ask around a little bit and they're like, oh, you've got to talk to so-and-so. <laughs> so they they put me in touch with this nurse who had documented everything, and she was so eager to tell somebody. She, it was word vomit. I'm like, hi, my name's Paul. I'm, uh, they told me to call you about the story. <laughs> she, was so, she was so eager to tell me that story. And, you know, once again, it's like, how, what, what are the, what are the odds of this lady conjuring up a story that this happened to her and picking the name Thomas out of the ether, right? I mean, it's, right. it's a fairly common name. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, Jehoshaphat or something, you know, that's an uncommon name. But, but still, what are the odds? And so, you know, I hear this story and I'm like, exactly. I don't know. I, exactly. I can't debunk it. I can't. I can't dismiss that story out of hand just because it doesn't fit with my worldview or whatever. You know, it does fit with my worldview. But, you know, as a as a truly skeptical person, you know, how I, I couldn't just dismiss that out of hand. So, I don't know. It's it's fascinating. And and I think I think it's the height of human hubris to just look at the world around us and say, oh, we got everything figured out. We're so smart. There's no mystery out there. We got everything. Everything's good. Like, <laughs> how do you even say that? I mean, the universe is such a big place. And yeah, there's, there's so still many... a lot of mysteries. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But here's a yeah. question for you, Paul, about this. Now, in your travels and speaking with people, has anybody talked about information they got from the other side that helped solve a crime? You know what? There are interesting cases in the literature where that has happened, but never in my circle around here. So I've never heard of a case 
it's happened, but there are examples where that's happened. And I think that would, that, that you can find out about. And what's, oh, he kind of caught me off guard. There's, there's a really fascinating one. I can't remember what the name is. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But it was, it was a case in, it was Kentucky, maybe. But there was a, a man and a woman who were married. And he, this is like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I think it was late 1800s. And he, the guy had come into town. He was kind of a drifter, worked as a blacksmith. But he married this girl. And the mother was very much opposed to them getting married. And so they got married. Things seemed to be going okay. Well, one day this this husband, this blacksmith husband, sends a, one of the boys who worked at the blacksmith shop or one of the local boys. To, he's like, hey, can you go to my house and get something from me or get something from my house? And so the kid's like, okay. So he goes to the house and he finds the woman dead at the bottom of the stairs. And so he freaks out and runs and tells people and they all, they'll go there. And, and there were, there was a, there was an inquest that was going to be made as to the death of this woman, but the husband tried to thwart it at every turn. He uh, would, he dressed her for burial himself, which was unusual because usually the, the women folk of the community, so you know, so to speak, would handle that chore. But he wanted to dress his wife himself. And when the doctor started to examine her a little bit, he acted like he was too distraught to let this happen. And, and so he kind of thwarted investigation to occurring the whole time. And you know, during the wake, he wouldn't let anybody really come close to her. He dressed her in a really high collar and long sleeves and different things. Anyway, so she's buried, kind of goes on, you know, life goes on. But the mother, this woman's mother, starts to have dreams that the girl is coming to her. And it's interesting because in, in her dream, she described it as there was like an orb, like this bright light. And then that orb transitioned and materialized into the daughter. And the daughter's like, hey, mom. My husband killed me, and he strangled me and crushed my windpipe and broke my neck. And to prove that, the ghost would turn its head backwards. <laughs> it was wow. a, kind of a macabre element of it. But, yeah, and yeah. so the mom's like, well, you know, she has these dreams. And so she starts going to the local magistrates and saying, hey, my daughter was killed by this guy. I never liked him. There was all this suspicious stuff. And so she eventually talked them into exhuming the body and examining it. And lo and behold, this poor girl had a broken neck, crushed windpipe, all these things. And so it turns out that this guy had been married multiple times before. And multiple wives had died before. He was a, uh, And they eventually were able, based on the mother's dreams, to get enough evidence to convict this guy. And he went to prison. And it's a fascinating story. And there's, there's a few others I've heard. Um, I, that would be a really fun book to write, you know, gather up those examples where, you know, once again, this mother had very specific information. Like, true, she hated the guy. She never liked him. And it's not uncommon for, you know, 
the family to want to blame a spouse when a spouse dies of natural causes. I mean, it, it's, it's all, you know, stuff like that happens. But she had this very specific information about right. what happened. Very interesting. And, and again, the police how do you her. discount that? Right. Uh-huh. Yep. And now, it, how, it does, says, how does law enforcement feel about working with psychics today? You know, I what, once again, in my in my experience here in our corner of the world, we have not used them, but I've heard plenty of examples of different law enforcement agencies around the company or company country using them, and you know, I think. At some point, it's probably a matter of desperation where they have cases that just aren't being solved or bodies that haven't been found. And, you know, they've exhausted all of the normal stuff. And so they've turned to psychics to help them. And, yeah, I've heard stories where it's borne some fruit. But, yeah, I personally around here, we have never used them. So, yeah, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. But, you know, I – I think a lot of people are open to it because, you know, the, the, the investigators, the crime scene people and the detectives and the officers, they, they take these cases personally. They really want to help the victims and the victims' families and solve these cases. And so I, I don't think anything legal is off the table for a lot of people, you know, can't do, can't break the rules, but I mean, there's, yeah, yeah, there's plenty of examples where they've gone to that. Have you ever helped we've, anybody? Yeah. Or? yeah, we've seen a number of cases that uh, where the police departments have been actively involved with psychics, and then we've seen some where the police departments don't want anything to do with it. So it's kind of a, a hit or miss thing. You never know how the police department will respond. But there is one case you may want to look into, uh, there's a show, a series called Paranormal Witness. Have you heard of that one? It used to run um, on sci-fi. I have. I'm not super familiar with it. but Yeah, it used to run on sci-fi, and I think now you can get it on uh, one of the streaming services like Netflix or whatever. But Paranormal Witness, they did some really, really tremendous work on cases like this, and one of them really stands out. It was called... Through the Eyes of a Killer, and mm-hmm. it was a remarkable story, and it had quite a twist at the end, and I, I highly recommend that you watch that show if you haven't seen it already. I know I've mentioned it before to our audience. It is absolutely incredible, and it actually has a lot of elements of what you're talking about in that particular show. And the case was solved at the end, not to give any spoilers, but there's still a twist that is unbelievable. Even for us, we've seen just about everything in the paranormal and the supernatural, but this really, really blew our minds. And so you might want to take a look at that one. Yeah, it sounds interesting. It's, so it's just go- amazing. I Googled it really quick. So the, the story I told you where the mother saw the ghost, it's called the Greenbrier Ghost. Ah, good. And okay. the young lady who was murdered was named Zona Hester Shue. And so I, that's that's one of the best cases where <laughs> the paranormal helped solve a crime that I've heard of. Like, it's just, 
it's a cool story. So yeah, I mean, we've, hard, we've, hard to debunk. It is. I mean, we have a dear friend, uh, George, who is George Lugo is his name. He's a great psychic medium, and actually Scotland Yard called him about the Madeline McCann case, which I'm sure you're familiar huh? with that one. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to us that Scotland Yard was open to that, and obviously they had come to so many dead ends to try to find this girl. Um, right, and, they, and they like I said, I don't, I don't think most law enforcers, the psychic would be their first go-to, you know, but when they've exhausted all other legal means available to them, the open-minded ones are like, why not? Like, what, it doesn't hurt anything. Exactly. So. And there are so many cold cases. There are so many unsolved cases. And it, it would be great if they could reach out without any judgment. But like you said, just trying to get this thing solved and take another criminal off the street who is potentially very dangerous. So why not? You know, why not reach out to some of the best? And there are great, great psychic mediums out there who do a lot of good work with us, but they wait to be invited. Uh, they don't offer your services. They wait because, again, yeah. they don't know how they're going to be received. It's like, well, maybe you did it if you have this information. They don't yeah, dare take and I think, that kind of risk. Yeah, I think that there is a risk because if you do have too much specific information, they could be like, hey. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you they get you. That's kind of not the point of this. So, <laughs> Exactly. But, yeah, it's it's nice to see that there's an openness in law enforcement to at least talk about these experiences. And there's been a number of videos posted on TikTok by a police officer who has uh, had people tell him lots and lots of stories that, like you have found, are unexplained. And some of them are quite quite intriguing. What is your favorite story? Oh, my favorite story. That's a good question. So I think one of the weirder stories from the book that I I guess I'll call it my favorite because I really don't know what to make of it. Um, I I can't even wrap my mind around what this possibly is. But a few years back, uh, I was called to a death investigation. And it, it it was really routine. Um, you know, nothing really suspicious was going on. And, and that's the bulk. You know, we go to a lot of death investigations uh, that aren't suspicious and aren't a murder. But they, by law, you need to go see what happened. So there's a law in Utah, and I'm sure other states have similar laws, that if a person hasn't seen a doctor for a certain period of time and they die, there needs to be some sort of investigation as to why they died and then an autopsy is conducted and different things like that. It's called, in Utah, it's called an unattended death. It's just that someone died, but they were not attended by a physician. The physician will not sign the death certificate, and so you need to take a look at it. So we get them all the time. I mean, today on the shift I worked, there were two. And it's pretty common to go on these unattended deaths. And so I get a call to go on an unattended death in this kind of rundown trailer park in one of the cities that we serve. And and it was, it was a kind of a dreary day, but it wasn't super cold. It was a little bit cold, but you know, not, 
in the middle of winter. But when I get there, all the officers are standing outside of the trailer. And so usually that means that the person's been down for a while and it's, they're in a state of decomposition and that's very unpleasant to smell. So usually when they're outside, when I get there, it means that they don't want to be in there because of the smell. And so I walk up and then say, Hey fellas, uh, the decomposition. And they're like, no. And I'm like, Oh, what are you guys all standing around outside for on this cold day? And, And they say, well, you'll see. And I'm like, well, what? And they're like, mold. And I'm like, mold? Mold. That's all they'll say. And so I go into the house, and it, the, 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 the most imaginative set designer for Hollywood horror movies could not have made a creepier place than the inside of this trailer. Um, the floor was squishy, like there had been a leak. Um, as you walked, you squished. There were cobwebs everywhere. There was porcelain dolls covered with thick layers of dust staring at you when you would shine your flashlight around. And and when I get into the bedroom where the, the, the deceased is, she is covered with mold. So she had been Ew. down not for a long time, but long enough for black mold to cover most of the surfaces in there. And it was just... It was just really weird. And so I go in there, and I'm like, well, that's not something you see every day. But I go, and I do my job, and I look around, and I photograph things and try to make sure that it looks like what we think it is. And so, you know, I'm in there for an hour or so, and I'm I'm getting ready to leave. And I look, you know, it's just, it's so creepy in there. The atmosphere is just, you could cut it with a knife. But I get ready to go, and I look at her door, and pinned to her door is a handwritten note. And in a halting but easily legible handwriting, she had written on this paper, who or what are you? Question mark. And it was pinned to this door. And oh my. I, I was just like, what, what, what does that mean? Like, I just... I, I came out there and I'm like, what? Did you guys see the door? No. And they go in and we're just all like, who or what are you? Like, what? 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 <laughs> it was. I, I don't. I still to this day haven't the slightest idea what that meant. And had she been seeing something, or she, had she been haunted, or this mold? And like, it was just. It was so bizarre. And I don't know. It's one of those things I think about to this day, and I'm like, I have no. I have nothing. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of creepy when you think about it. Was this poor gal being tormented by something, or was she just, How long had she been dead before you guys found her? (sighs) That's hard to say, because it was kind of cold in there, and she was kind of skinny. And so when it's cold enough, a body can not really or it may not decompose that quickly. So I think only about a week probably, though. I can't can't remember off the top of my head, though, but long enough for mold to grow on her. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was, yeah, it was it was weird. I mean, it's, yeah, favorite story. I, it's not a happy story, but it's just just the ultimate mystery for me. I have no clue what any of that meant, but. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, could she have been mentally ill? Could she have been seeing things from the other side that were scary to her? It sounds like she was somewhat of a loner if it took a week to find yeah. her. So, yeah. Yeah. Was. Very interesting. How do you deal Indeed. with the images that you see? Because we talked, Paul, to a lot of psychics who will not do this kind of work because they said the images that come to them are so vivid, like the ones you photograph, that they can't get them out of their mind. So they won't do this. Right. But how do you deal with that? You're a photographer. You're looking into that lens, and you're seeing some pretty horrific things. It's true. Um, that's a good question. Um, it This job, the crime scene job, is extremely stressful and a lot of people don't make it past seven years. That's yeah. kind of the burnout, the burnout period. And yeah, it's it's interesting, and, and it, it's kind of a it's kind of a stress that is not super well understood in law enforcement. Like we're we're you know compared to how many officers there are, there's just very few crime scene people, and and there's lots of research on the acute stress that an officer experiences you know, being shot at or someone trying to stab them or whatever. And, you know, they have this acute stress and then it's over. But not a lot of research is done on the chronic stress. And probably a really good example of that is uh, one time in one of our cities, a man killed his family and then himself. And so the officers go into the house because no one had heard from the family for a while and they find they find this, this family just terrible, terrible children murdered type of scene and you know they come out and they're really stressed out and so their their supervisor's like oh that's terrible you saw that why don't you take the rest of the night off and so they leave but then okay csi you go in that house now and you stare at those people those dead children for the next 10 hours (laughs) and you know good luck and and so it is I, i don't know if you ask me how i do it that's a good question i've often wondered um I think you definitely need to have a balanced life. Um, I've actually, in some of the forensic conferences, I've taught uh, a course that I call Mental Health Survival for Forensics People, and there is, I, I teach, I try to teach them balance, that you have to have a good balance between the physical and the intellectual part of you, but then also the spiritual, that if you neglect any one of those three components, you're going to have trouble. And, you know, there's many different ways to nurture the spiritual side of it. Some people it's religion and other people it's nature or yoga. Or, I mean, there's different ways. But um, so, you know, it's important to try to have that balance. But I don't know. I, I think some people just aren't cut out for it. Um, we've I've had colleagues who just say, well, I've seen one dead body too many, and I quit. And so I don't know. Yeah, I think it just takes kind of a certain certain type of mentality too. But there, it's, yeah. it's getting better. People are starting to recognize the mental health aspects of it, and they've started to send us to a psychologist every year and different things. So, But it, it's, it is not fun. I mean, there's plenty of times when I've come home and I'm just like, what did I just have to look at? <laughs> And it, yeah, exactly. it's, it's rough. 
Yeah, it's I know, and and when PK and I have talked to so many, as I mentioned, psychics that won't do this kind of work for this reason, you know, because it's too horrific to see in their minds, and then they can't get it out of their minds. So yeah. that's why they don't do it. I remember once with George, I had gotten a phone call from a lovely lady whose son had taken off from the house, and before he did that, he scrubbed everything on his computer. And I <clears throat> referred her to George, and George called me up, and he was real mad at me. <laughs> he said, please, don't ever send me a case like this again. And I'm like, why? What's your problem? Well, same problem, you know, because it's so hard uh, to see a young man. As this turned out, this young man committed suicide. George uh, said this is how he did it. You know, he'd left your house with a gun, and he did shoot himself. You will find him under a small bridge, and he is somewhat covered by leaves. And that's exactly when they found where they found him. Mm-hmm. But it's, again, that it's such a sad situation as a young man uh, with his whole life ahead of him. So, and it, it did take them some time to to find the body, but it was where George said it was. But he he pleaded with me, please, <laughs> don't call me again with that kind of thing. And and it's you know for that reason. That's why I wanted to know, you know, how how does somebody handle it? And like you said, you don't know. And um, it's maybe there is no answer for this. Maybe you're able Almost to like compartmentalize it. And save my job. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and it, it's 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 terrible sometimes. It is. I'm not going to lie. But you know, we the people I work with are you know devoted to the cause of justice, and they want to give victims the voice that was taken away from them. And so, you know, it's and and I, you know I think some people are just have the proper mentality or the stomach, you know, the hardened stomach, I guess, to deal with it and. And some people don't. And, you know, like I said, I've had colleagues that have said, oh, that's enough for me. And, you know, then mm-hmm. other people do it for years and years. And, yeah, and, it, and it's funny. Like some some people are really interested in the what happens to a body during and after death. You know, that's kind of the thing about forensics that really interests them. And I always tell my rookies and stuff, I'm like, I hate going on those death calls. <laughs> When I'm done with this business, I won't miss those at all. You know, I'm not, but you know, I can do it and hopefully do a good job at it. But yeah, I don't. They don't interest me. It's not my area that interests me in forensics. But yeah, you have to be able to handle it, or you're not going to make it. Yeah, it's a very very hard job, I think. But has any of the people in law enforcement talked to you about seeing UFOs? You know, I I know that there was an officer in one of our nearby cities, I think it was Roy, Utah, who saw a UFO. But I've had a few officers tell me Bigfoot stories. But, yeah, other than that one, I've never actually talked to the officer myself. But, yeah, I've heard that one of the guys out there saw something. But, yeah, it's um, it's. Yeah, personally, I haven't spoken to anyone, but yeah, a few, a few of them well, have. Well, tell us the Bigfoot, Bigfoot stories. stories. That sounds great. Well, the the Bigfoot ones are interesting because where, where we're at, Ogden, Utah, and Weber County are very interesting because we have Ogden is is a city of about seventy eighty thousand people. It used to be the 
second biggest city in Utah, but eventually, you know, different areas have grown up and, you know, it's not one of the biggest cities anymore. And, but Ogden has a really colorful history because the, all, if you take a train then and now even, well, maybe it's not much now, but back in the day at the height of, you know, steam engines, you could, if you took a train from east to west, you went through Ogden. It's called, its nickname is called Junction City, the joining of the Golden Spike uh, to join the Transcontinental Railroad that happened just a few miles away from Ogden. And so um, it's always been kind of a bustling and even rough and tumble city. Supposedly Al Capone visited Ogden once and he said, oh, this place even scares me. <laughs> so it, really? it has a, it's always had a bit of a reputation. Um, it's, it's been, it's kind of gentrified now, but it's, you know, it's, so it's, it's been rough and tumble, but then just minutes from downtown. I mean, if, if you got in your car and drove due east from downtown Ogden, you would be in mountains that are 10,000 feet tall in seven minutes. Like you'd be in the foothills of those. And so it's really mountainous, but there's part of the really deserty parts out by the Great Salt Lake. And so it's, it's a really kind of a weird county. So there's very mountainous remote areas in our county. And so the, the, three Bigfoot stories I have from officers, two of them happened here and one of them happened up in the Pacific Pacific Northwest. And so the stories that happened here, two, two old school deputies, they're both retired now, but they, they were out on patrol one night up by the Pineview Dam it's near a city called Huntsville, um, beautiful mountain town on the other side of the mountains from Ogden. And, um, Back in back in the day, there weren't a lot of people up there. You know, back in the 80s when this happened, there weren't a lot of people. So they would, on patrol at night, it was just dead. In the, in the middle of winter up there on night shifts, nothing was going on. So the officers would find ways to entertain themselves or keep awake. And so one of the things that they cops like to do is pull driver's side door to driver's side door so they can just talk. You know, they're sitting in their car and talking. So these two deputies are up there winter's night they're talking and as the story goes they eventually kind of fall asleep and i know that's a no-no but the statute of limitations has passed this was in the 80s so nothing's going on radio's quiet they fall asleep so sometime later they wake up and it had snowed and it was just a light snow the snow here in utah is very dry powdery snow it's great for skiing the motto of the state is greatest snow on earth because it has this great dry powder. Well, they, they look out and, you know, they're kind of sleepy, but they look out and they see that someone had walked right by where they were parked and where they had dozed off. And there was this clear set of tracks that kind of comes out of the woods, crosses the parking lot where they were very near to their car and moves on. But as they're kind of waking up and looking at the, the, sh the footprints, they look weird. So they jump out of the car, go over to him, look down, Bigfoot, giant, naked foot, toes, you know, heel, everything, just these big foot tracks right across <laughs> where they were parked. <laughs> and so they were quite freaked out by this, and they were, they're both avid outdoorsmen, hunters, they even like do the mountain man kind of reconstruction or not reconstruction, the 
reenactment. And so they're very comfortable in the woods, but when they saw those tracks, they took off. <laughs> they were really freaked out, especially with how close they were to them when they were sleeping. And who knows, maybe someone's playing a prank on them. Who knows? But the other story is really interesting because there's a road that goes up very high in the mountains, and it's called Monte Cristo. The area up in the mountains is called, that's what it's called, Monte Cristo, and there's a state road that winds up. It goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. I can't remember what the pass that goes over the mountains tops that out, but it's like above 10,000 feet, probably – 11 yeah, it's it's really tall anyway one an office but it's really windy road so you're going around these corners there's all these switchbacks and and so one night this officer is coming back from hunting hunting trip and this guy is an avid outdoorsman um he hunts anything that he can just he loves hunting so much and so he knows what wild animals look like. He's seen bears. He's seen elk. He's seen all these animals. He, he knows. It, it's part of his craft as an excellent hunter to know what these animals are. And so he's night. He's driving on these windy roads. He comes around a bend. His lights start to pan as his car straightens out. And as his light, his headlights pan, he sees in the middle of the road a large extremely tall, hairy creature walking across the road. Now, you could say, of course, that was just the bear that he saw, but he's very specific in describing the arms. Because a bear can walk upright, but when they do that, their arms kind of go up by their face, right? If you've mm-hmm. seen a bear walk, their mm-hmm. arms kind of fold in a little bit and they go up. But this officer clearly describes the long um, waving, kind of sloping arms, hanging down below the waist as this creature takes a few strides and crosses the road. He's very, he keys in on those arms, that they're not up under the chin like a bear would be. They are hanging down. They are just kind of waving with as this creature strides. Think Patterson-Gimley film, right? So right. those those arms are just kind of waving there. And so he keys in on the arms and he's like, I know bears. I've seen bears. And that was not a bear. <laughs> and yeah, his, his explanation of the arms is that's important because yeah, you, so many people just wanted to, bundle, Oh, it's just a bear. But a bear's arms don't lope and swing as it walks and hang down. They just don't. And so the third story this one's even this one's even more freaky. And so one of the officers that I worked with, he's since retired, but he was in the army and he was stationed up in the Pacific Northwest and they were out doing maneuvers one night deep in the woods. And so they get their tent set up, him and his buddy are in the tent and you know they're bunking down for the night and all of a sudden they smell a terrible smell. Just musky stanky, just a terrible smell. And they're like, what is that? Like they never smelled anything so terrible. And so they're kind of, you know, what is that? What is that? And all of a sudden a branch, a pretty, you know, not a huge branch or it would have really hurt them, but a pretty good sized branch falls on their tent and kind of collapses their tent on them. It doesn't hurt them, but certainly freaks them out. 
well, they get out and shine their flashlights around and they don't really see anything and they get the branch off and then they go back to bed and it's the rest of an uneventful night. But when they wake up in the morning and they can see because it's daylight, you know, see better than just by flashlight, they look up and the tree next to their tent is where that branch came from. And it was a, it was a living tree, but high up, like eight, nine feet up above the tent, that branch had just been torn and ripped out from the tree. You know, it didn't, it wasn't old and snapped off. It was a living tree that had it ripped and torn and you could see where the fibers had come out torn and the bark had come off. It had been wrenched and torn and ripped from that tree and then dropped on top of their tent. <laughs> and they were like, wow, let's get out of here. So yeah, they wanted to uh, vacate the vicinity after seeing that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, these are credible witnesses, too. I mean, again, I'm yep. sure these men who are camping out there, they've seen bears before. They've seen, they've had other experiences. That, but this is very different. This is very unusual. And also the uh, the two police officers that you started talking about. I mean, a bear is, is very distinctive in the way it looks and the way it moves. And seeing a these huge footprints in the snow or, again, you know, seeing uh, seeing this creature walking in front of you in the road, just crossing the road and watching the gate, especially that man. He was a very experienced hunter. And oh, yes. He knew very what he was looking at. Yeah, he knew. Mm-hmm. And so there's if, many if that had been a bear, like this. He would have. If that had been a bear, he would have said it was a bear. You know, he's not. He wasn't exactly. out there looking. Exactly. He would have said, "Oh, bear walked in front of me." Yeah, because yep. as we've said before on this show, there is no upside to going public with these kinds of things. It's not like you get a big pat on the back for it. So the people that are speaking out and saying, "Yeah, this is what happened," they they really are telling the truth, in my opinion, because it's not like somebody's writing them a million dollar check to talk about this, and then they face incredible scrutiny and other things. So it's, again, these true. people are credible. Yeah. Right, and, and you know, like with the, with the officer who saw the, the creature crossing the road, okay, someone, someone's up in a suit playing a prank on him, okay. That, that's one explanation for this. But this is such a, a lonely, dark road. Like, the, if someone was going to play a prank, they would go in the – a place where they were ensured that cars were going to be passing by. You Definitely. wouldn't go up to the top of these mountains where you don't even know if a car is going to drive by for hours to, to stage some prank like that. It's, it, it's possible, but it certainly isn't a reasonable, you know, it's not the most it's reasonable. It's unreasonable for a number of reasons because who would do that with two armed officers sitting in a car? Yeah. That's a big risk. That is. <laughs> because, you know, think about it. I mean, sure, these two uh-huh. officers wake up and see this thing. Why wouldn't they shoot? So that's the other reason why I think there's no – this is the truth. This is what happened. They saw the footprints. It happened while they were sleeping. And, well, why not? But for somebody to play a prank on a police officer like that, that's crazy. Who would do that? Yeah. In the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's no guarantee. Yeah, you would go to some place where there's a guaranteed to be people. Uh, yeah, just it's not reasonable. But yeah, I don't know. 
the, these two officers, the one who saw the tracks, they, they are a hoot. Like they're, I should write a book just about their careers because like I said, they, they liked their, they're avid outdoorsmen, but they do the, the mountain man recreation stuff. And so they, they were out hunting uh, squirrels with black powder rifles one day. And so the, there was a squirrel up on top of this branch and well, the one guy um, takes his black powder rifle and aims it at the squirrel and shoots. And black powder rifles are extremely accurate. And he hit the branch with the projectile and it bounced back and hit him in the center of his head and knocked him out. Oh, oh <laughs> and it had lost it had lost enough velocity going and hitting the tree and coming back that it didn't, you know, it, it knocked him out, but it didn't, you know, break the skin or anything. It, it rung his bell really bad. And so when he Ooh. when he came to, his friend was like, "I am so glad you didn't die because nobody would believe me that you shot yourself in the head with a blaster." <laughs> It could have been another crime scene you were investigating. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it would be one you would want yeah. to investigate. <laughs> now, yeah, what do you plan for your next out. for your next book, Paul? Because I, I'm guessing, like from what you said, you have more stories to write about. I do, and I've been oh, I've been so busy lately. I haven't done any fun writing for a while. I've done a few scientific papers and different things, but just in, in preparation recently, I've collected a whole bunch of new stories. And so I got to get them down. I'm going to, I'm going to write a sequel to fingerprints and phantoms. And I already have some good stories that have come in that, yeah. So I'll be working on that. Once again, it'll probably be a, another uh, multi-year kind of labor of love type of thing. But yeah, I got to get some of these stories down, these new ones that I've got. That'll be great. Well, we'll look forward to reading that one also. It's just, it's very, um, very mind-opening, consciousness-expanding what you're doing, but also it's very heartfelt. I mean, these people are moved and touched by their experiences in many ways. So it's great that people are feeling safe enough to talk about them, and then we get to hear about them. And it's it's a good endeavor. It really is. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, once again, and I don't, I don't consider myself a paranormal researcher necessarily or a ghost hunter, you know, like in many ways, I just approach it from kind of a folklore point of view, you know, I just love these stories. But yeah, you, you can't, once you start getting stories collected and seeing certain trends and certain patterns and you know hear these credible stories over and over again it's you know it's hard to just keep it in the the box of oh those are just stories you know you just see these things and yeah like you said that one that one nurse and so many people are just so excited that they can tell this story and not be ridiculed yes yes and it is something we need to make room for in our culture and it looks like we are again based on the polls based on what people are saying that they feel is real. Um, this is all part of it. There's no more exclusion for the most part in terms of the paranormal, which is great. I mean, look at what's happening with UFOs right now. It's now been rebranded. It's UAP, and the Pentagon claims to have a report they're going to issue. 
Yeah, so it's like all of a sudden these things are all of a sudden. But through the years, it has built up uh, to a point where we can feel comfortable talking about the paranormal. So, yeah, we're very excited to see this report, although we don't hold out a lot of hope that the Pentagon's going to tell us anything we don't already know. So we'll just have to see, yeah, the, I guess. The fact that this topic now is being discussed without the tongue-in-cheek that it's been discussed for yeah. so long. I mean, it's a right. victory in and of itself. You know, yeah, talk it'll about, be interesting. Re, talk about freeing people to, like, give it a serious scientific examination now. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and the same is happening with ghosts and with many other things, but in a different way. So we look forward to your next book. And, again, tell people how to find you on Facebook. All right, so go to Facebook and search in your search area, Fingerprints and Phantoms. And you'll find my Facebook page, and I would love it, especially if you're in law enforcement or fire or military, to hear some of the things that have happened to you. Shoot me a message, and I would love to hear your story, and maybe it'll make it into the next book. If it's good enough, it's going to go in there. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for a wonderful evening, and good luck with collecting those new stories. And next week, everybody, we will be back with another great show. We are going to be talking with Jennifer Miele about the Star Trek medicine that is being offered at her clinic in Baja, California. Don't miss it. It's going to be great. And until then, we'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.